Turn to Romans chapter 8. We are completing chapter 8 of Romans today. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Plowing on through. There you go. We are completing Romans chapter 8. We are not going into to chapter 9 until January. Next week, we begin the Advent season. And so, I want to preach a series of messages on the birth of Jesus, what it means, the Advent, out of Luke, uh, out of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah will probably be on uh, a short message on our candlelight service on the 24th. We will be having that on the 24th, so uh, we'll prepare for that if you would. But today we are going to finish chapter 8, and we are in verses 35 through 39. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this eighth chapter, in these just few verses, this represents the final questions, the final two questions, and the final answer of Paul, which is the summit. It is the peak of all the other answers uh, and questions. He begins to say, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? So let's put it in a different vernacular. This is what he says. Who can erect a wall? Who can drive a wedge? between Christ and you? Who can do that? What person can make Christ run and hide from us? What would cause or could cause Christ to turn his back on us and walk away from us? Now, those may seem like silly little questions, but there are those who believe that our sins can cause Christ to walk away from us that he would just turn his back on us. Then Paul asks another question by giving list of things that we might think could separate us from Christ. And it's interesting to note that Paul's just not pulling these things out of the air, folks, at all in this list. These are things that actually were happening to Christians at the time of his writing. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, we have the story where he went to Thessalonica and there in Thessalonica, he meets a, a fellow believer by the name of Jason. And Jason received Paul and Silas into their house. And after they had preached at the synagogues, the Jews got really upset that they were messing with them and their beliefs. And they're basically messing with their sources of income. And it says in 17, it says, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there, that there is another king, Jesus. You see what was happening is that the confession of Christ 
or to walk with Christ basically meant conflict with Rome. Why? Because Rome had declared that the Caesar, the emperor, was the object of worship. And it was actually required to be able to do their daily affairs, to transact things, to buy and sell. If you did not worship Caesar, they literally could stop you from receiving food and clothing. It often meant that you could have imprisonment, torture. Families would be left without their breadwinner, thereby then causing famine and financial ruin and hardship. In many cases, it led to death. In fact, that same thing that you bowed to Caesar in the time of Paul carried on for two centuries after the death of Paul by the hands of Romans. Robert J. Morgan, in his book on this day in church history, says in 80, uh, 180 A.D., seven men and five women were captured carrying sacred books and the letters of Paul, a just man, as it's recorded. And on July 17, 180, they appeared before the Roman proconsul Saturninus in Carthage. Here's the charges that were read against them. You ready for this? Whereas Spiratus, Narzalus, Satinus, Donata, Vestia, and Secunda, and the rest have confessed that they, have li- they live in accordance with the religious rites of the Christians, and when an opportunity was given them of returning to the usage of the Romans, they persevered in their obstinacy. So it is our pleasure, therefore, that they should suffer the sword. Sparatus, when he heard that, shouted, Thanks be to God! Narzalus said, Today we are martyrs in heaven. Thanks be to God! The proconsul was a little bewildered. He said, We too have a religion, and ours is a simple one. We swear by the fortune of the emperor. You should do the same. Sparatus replied, I do not recognize an emperor in this world. I serve that God whom no man has seen or can see. The Lord, I acknowledge, is the emperor of all the kings and all nations. Donata added, honor to Caesar, but reverence to God alone. Another said, we reverence no one except our God in heaven. And Saturninus was still perplexed and said, would you like to think it over? Sparatus said, what's the use? The matter is plain as it can be. And they were marched out and given the sword. They were relieved of their heads. Seven women, five men. Paul experienced those same kind of things as well. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with the rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches." Do you see what he's saying? The list of the things that he lists in this passage just weren't pulled out of of clear air. He basically said, I've experienced these things. 
But he's saying to us, and from those experiences, even those things are not going to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to those things. Let's look at them. Here's the explanation. You see the first one, it says tribulation. Your translation may say trouble. It's basically a word for strong pressure, to be squeezed under pressure. Distress, it's a general word that means a narrow space. In other words, you feel so much tribulation that you feel distressed because you feel that the walls are closing in around you. There's no escape, no room for movement. This, this, what, this is what happens when we experience pressure of life. We feel that there is no way out. We are in a vice grip. and No one can let us go. The word persecution, next word, it brings before us this ever possibility that the church, the early church experienced. What were they doing? They were experiencing affliction for being follower of Christ. Let me please stomp on this a little bit for you today when you don't get your favorite parking place because someone else has parked there you are not being persecuted do you you understand there's a lot of us that think oh God is against me today I didn't get my parking place no or that your kids messed up their room or they left it messy, or no one is following orders around your house. Folks, that's not persecution. Trust me, that's not persecution. Persecution is the things I read about, getting your head chopped off, dying by the sword for the sake of Christ and being a follower of Christ. But he goes on. Famine can happen as a result of those three things that we just talked about, tribulation, distress, persecution. Why? Because, say we take the father out of the home, and he is killed for the sake of Christ. That leaves no one for the breadwinner. And therefore, they don't have food. They don't have clothing. They don't have what they need. That's why he followed it with nakedness. It means that you're going to be exposed. Even Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we were exposed. We were, in, we're exposed. We were in danger. And danger reminds us of the many risks, threats of those who oppose Christianity. Now, folks, we are moving along that way. Here in the United States, we're getting in danger for just being Christian. We're in danger of that, but we are not at that point where we're going to be beheaded. But we do have dangers. The ones you need to pray for are the ones that are overseas, especially in China, in Africa, and other places where they're literally being dragged out and killed for proclaiming Christ. But understand this, dear friends. When people are being killed and persecuted for Christ, God in his majesty and sovereignty expands the gospel in its reach. We know, we know what's happened. We know just from the 1800s, 1700s, and 1800s in China where they sent missionaries and they came in and had a few converts. Now as the, as China, the Chinese have been persecuted... And it's even happening even more today. The church continues to grow. There are now almost 150 million Christians in China. It's amazing what is happening. They're the ones we need to pray for. They're the ones that have the dangers and the risk. And also, the sword, of course, means execution. Death by sword. 
It is the only in the, uh, the item in the list that Paul had not gone, undergone yet. But guess what? He did. He was beheaded in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down. James was sawn in two. That's the sword. That's the persecution. It's all all for the cause of Christ. But did it separate them from the love of Christ? Absolutely not. In other words, Paul is writing and he's saying, people experiencing these things should not be discredited. You should not be humiliated with the insinuation that your persecution was a sign that Christ has left you, that you've been alienated from Christ. It's not a sign of displeasure or disfavor from God it's not a sign that you have weak faith that's what we have to deal with in the teachings that's coming over radio and TV that those who are saying that there's healing always in the atonement and if you are sick it's because you have small faith folks that's not true that's a lie from the pits of hell we have it in the scripture that even Paul tells people Especially like Epaphrodites, he says, pray for him because in the work of Christ, he got sick. It wasn't because he had little faith. It wasn't because he had sin in his life. He just got sick. And so don't let anybody tell you that when you're going through troubles, let them point to you and say, well, there must be sin in your life. You must not have enough faith. Don't let them do that to you. It's not a sign of divine displeasure. Sometimes we think life squeezes us and distresses us and we go, what did I do wrong? What am I doing wrong? And you begin to search your mind for every known deed and every word that you've said and it produces anxiety. But folks, this is just the fulfillment of what Jesus said. What did he say? He said this, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have it. It's going to ha happen to you. No one is exempt. It doesn't mean that you're out of favor with God or out of God's will at all. He goes on then. He's going to quote Psalm 44 in connection with the sword. He says, we are being killed all the day long. So some people will experience martyrdom to that, but that doesn't put them out of favor with God. What does he go on and says? Notice what he says in verse 37. He said... For your sake, he says before that, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But what does he say? No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. That word doesn't mean just a conqueror. It means super victors in the, in the Greek. We are super victorious. We are abundantly victorious over all these things. But notice the agency through which we conquer. Is it in our own skills? Is it in our own way that we combat it? Is it in our own strength? Absolutely not. Listen to what it says. It says, it's because of the love of Jesus Christ. We are victorious because he was victorious over death, over the grave. He rose again. The victory was won through love, not through competition. It was won through love, not because of our skills, not because of our good looks as a competitor or anything else. It's because of his obedience, his humiliation to go to the cross for us out of love. Now, remember, 
what Paul wrote earlier in chapter 5. He said, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners. What did he do? Christ died for us. The apostle John states it many, many times in 1 John, the book that we're reading through in our worship service. Listen to some of them. It says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Again, in John 4, it says, So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. It's because of his love for us. So when these things fall on us, we need to know that they're not going to separate us from the love of God. In fact, we know that God's going to work them for what? For the good to them that love the Lord. What is our good? He tells us in the verses previous, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so when these things come on us, they are rubbing off some of the rough edges that we have in our sanctification. And they are making us more holy. And God works everything together for good. So when these things fell on Christ, how did he respond? He submitted to the will of God without grumbling and without complaining. It reminds me of a story by a fellow by the name I read about of James Guthrie. He was a pastor and he was a professor in 1651 in Scotland. He was accused of disloyalty for he had preached that Christ and not the Scottish king should rule the church. Guthrie said he respected the king's authority in civil matters, but he believed he should never try to control the church's affair. In his indictment, it was charged that Guthrie, now listen, this is charged just for preaching against the king that he did not have authority. He says, Guthrie did contrive, plot, counsel, consult, draw up, frame, invent, spread abroad or disperse, speak, preach, declaim, or utter diverse and sundry vile seditions tending to the vilifying of his majesty. Those were his charges, <laughs> to name a few. He was sentenced to be hanged. And on the morning of his execution, he rose about four in the morning for worship. Afterwards, when he asked how he was, he replied, I'm very well. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. His five-year-old son was brought to him and taking the boy on his knee, he said, William, the day will come when they cast up to you that your father was hanged. 
But be thou not ashamed, lad. It is in good cause. In other words, it was good. It was good. They hanged him. They cut off his head. They hanged it on one of the posts of a, of a fort. And every time his son passed by there, he would run home to his mother and cry, I saw dad's head. I saw daddy's head. Interestingly enough, that skull stayed there for 27 years until a brave student took it down and gave it a proper burial. Now we think about those stories and we say, how is that good? It's good because the gospel continued to be preached. It emboldened people. His stance emboldened people to continue to preach the gospel. That's how it calls good. But our good calls, what happens to our good? What is it when these things happen? What's going on? Again, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, and that's the job of God himself. That's why he's working these things together for good. But as we move on, we see that Paul gives us another list. He arranges them in four pairs along with two single items. Paul says, I am absolutely certain. I am absolutely for sure. I am persuaded. This is what he says. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life. So there's the first pair. He couples those together. Why? Because we fear death. Everyone usually will have some kind of fear, fear of death because of its certainty. But Paul says we conquer it through Christ. He says if I die, it's what? It's gain. But if I go on living, it's for your purpose. And so he did not fear death. He says we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because his death is our death. His life is our life. But Paul also throws uh, the word life in there because he says sometimes people don't fear death as much as they fear life because they have some anxious moments to where they don't know the future and they just get really upset about life and all the struggles that's going on and they just, this woe is me about everything. You've heard them, they complain. They're the complainers and the gripers and the grumblers that you always have. And you're probably going to have some at Christmas and at Thanksgiving this week. They're complaining about life. Folks, understand, life is going to throw things at us. But if you really want to know what the key to anxiety is, anxiety happens when you take the future and you bring it into the present and you stroke it and you pet it and you go, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, what's the future going to hold? Look, life is going to happen. And God's going to make it where you as a Christian are going to conform to the image of Christ. So no need to grumble and complain. Don't let it overwhelm you. And it doesn't separate you from the love of Christ. Here's the second thing he does. He says, angels are rulers. Now, commentators say that Paul had earthly monarchs or demons exclusively in mind. But there's no way because he uses the word messenger for angels... Could it be earthly messengers? Maybe. Could it be heavenly messengers? Yes. When it talks about those rulers, could it be heavenly rulers? Could it be earthly rulers? We don't know. 
really. But we need to understand nothing from messengers or from rulers, from angels or demons are going to separate us from the love of Christ. We're not going to happen. Then he presents to us the present and the future. Basically, he's saying this. Look, whatever time may bring us in the present or in the future, we know, no matter what those circumstances are, they are not going to separate us from the love of Christ. And then he throws in a word, powers, nor powers right there, right before the beginning of verse 39. The word is used for earthly powers in the New Testament or miracles at different times in the New Testament. At the same time, it talks about in the New Testament, it uses the same word for heavenly powers, such as the demonic, which we just mentioned. If it's used for powers and miracles in the times of New Testament, it could be like that of Simon the Magician who exhibited great powers through his magic and people began to believe in it. He said, even if you had somebody like that, that did these powers, that's not going to separate you from God. They can have a curse on you or put a hex on you, but it's not going to separate you from the love of God. It could be the heavenly power, such as the demonic, and you could be harassed constantly, but it still doesn't separate you from the word of God. So whatever meaning Paul has, this power, their power, the people that are in your lives, their power is not greater than the power of Christ and his love. He goes on and says, height or death. Now, commentators believe that this, these words were thrown in there as astrological terms. William Barclay writes that the ancient world was haunted by the tyranny of the stars. It was generally believed that everyone was born under a certain star and thereby an individual's destiny was settled. There are some who still believe that, but the ancient world was really haunted by this supposed domination of people's lives by the influence of stars. Therefore, the word height was the time when a star was at its zenith and its influence was greatest. Depth then was the time when a star was at its lowest, waiting to rise and put its influence on someone. Paul says... To these haunted people, the stars are not going to hurt you. They're not going to do it. Don't sit around and wait for the stars to line up. They're not going to hurt you. In their rising and in their setting, they are powerless to separate you from the love of God. Dear friends, you're probably thinking, there's no one out there that really believes that stuff. Oh, please Go on the internet and look that up. Better yet, how many of you, when you were born and raised and sat around your table, that your parents read you the horoscope every morning? Yep. It was kind of a matter of a joke around our house, but sometimes it became believable when we'd get the, the, mighty, the mighty volume of the Pasadena Citizen thrown at our porch about 5.30 in the morning and my dad would get it and we'd be sitting around the breakfast table and he would read our horoscope. He said, well, let's see what's happening today to you. <laughs> and he would joke, but he would read this stuff. Now, small children, 
we'd go, oh man, is that really going to happen? Well, he'd have to assure us that it wasn't. But still, he would read it. How many people still do that? Folks, I, you don't think it's... I picked up a paper in little old Nacogdoches, Texas just a couple of weeks ago, and guess what they had in there? The zodiac signs and the horoscope. Do people still read it and still trust it as the truth? Yes, they do. It doesn't... It, it, no. God is greater than these things. And no matter what they say, they are absolutely powerless to separate us from God's love. So he concludes this with saying this, nor anything else in all creation. In other words, he just throws it open and says, look, there ain't nothing, no matter what. There's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of Christ. And notice the words. He says nothing will be able. That's a statement of power. It is the power of Christ that keeps us from being separated from his love. It's the same power that displayed itself when the gospel was preached and the elect hearts were open to believe. It was and is the power of Christ's love that did this to drew you, drew you to the Father. So it's the power of Christ. It's also the paternal love of God, the Father before the foundation of the world predestined us in the verses before, called us, justified us, and will glorify us. That glorifies. That means we were loved before time. And it's also the persevering love of God through Christ. Listen to what it says. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, <clears throat> excuse me, in Christ. I'm having an attack, folks. I have to go. The attack is I'm preaching too hard. So let me grab my water <clears throat> and take care of this. Thank you. There's nothing good like water and vodka. I am teasing, you know that. So, For those listening around the world, I am teasing. Okay, so here it is. This is love before time. God's persevering love. It's not our love for him. Listen, he loved us first. And then we loved him. Therefore, what we have to concentrate on is not what our sins may do to us, how we may think they separate us, or our lack of love for him. He loves us and he perseveres in that love. Now, I want you to think about this. God's love and calling changed our nature. It absolutely gave us a new nature. Therefore, we cannot undo what God has done by our sin, by our unfaithfulness. God ransomed us through his son, Jesus Christ. Would he then give you back to the one who kidnapped you in the first place? Would God do that kind of thing? I don't believe so. I don't, I don't believe that believing that a person can be the son of God one day and then be the son of, of the devil the next day, that is unfathomable, folks. God bestowed upon his elect faith and repentance, which are gifts from him. He doesn't take them back. We will learn that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
they're irrevocable. He's not going to call them back. And since he predestined the recipients of these gifts to be conformed to the image of Christ, God will carry out his purpose. Remember, he who began a good work in you will do what? Complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will love you at all times, even if you get into, your, into sin, even if you shake your fist at God when trials befall you or you suppose he doesn't love you because he allowed you to experience tribulation, dangers, toils, hardships, snares. His persevering love will get you back on course because it's his job to do so. When we stray, he'll bring disciplinary love chastisement to us because we are his children and we then will go forward in the love of Christ so what do we do with this at the times of thanksgiving we should be forever thankful that our perseverance in sanctification and assurance is not dependent on us or our weaknesses but on God's sustaining love and power let me, I want to close with the, with the word of God. If you're going through the list of things that Paul is speaking of, take heart, because I want you to listen to these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. <clears throat> for it is all for your sake, so that the, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. Here's what's happening, dear folks. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of Christ. Not your trials, not your toils, not your snares. You are being prepared for a great day when you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you know, like a like a turkey gets prepared for Thanksgiving Day, you know, you and I are being prepared for your day of thanksgiving and praise and worship when you step into heaven and all its glory. So therefore, what we need to do is to glory in the power of the love of Christ, that paternal love of the Father 
he granted us in that continuing, persevering love he has towards us each and every day. We are to be thankful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that nothing will separate us from your love. No trials, no temptations, no ungodly influences, not even our sins. For you have ransomed us and redeemed us and given us grace and love and mercy. Thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that you would extend that mercy and that grace to one who might be here that does not believe, that has not trusted in you totally for their salvation. Lord, would you open their heart? And Father, would you save them? Let them call upon the name of the Lord and be saved this day. Father, as we go through this week and we gather with family, we gather with friends, let us always have you in mind and how we may glorify you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.